Amen. Um, suppose before I go any further, I should address the elephant in the room or the mannequin on the stage. But if you do have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn or tap to John chapter 9. We're going to begin there in a moment. This guy goes by the name Slim Jim, and his, <laughs> he's been a part of our team here for a while at Renovation, and his primary function serves as a video calibration dummy. So when we replace a piece of camera equipment or the lighting on stage changes, he stands right here so we can frame the shot, focus the shot, and balance skin tone. He's got beautiful skin. Um, <laughs> so when he's not serving in this capacity, he uh, hangs out in this back room as our full-time security guard, and I know many of you have been blessed to walk into the back room looking for something and <laughs> about had a heart attack as this guy's staring you down in the corner, okay? But he's out on good behavior today. He's going to help me with an illustration, and if you think it's weird that I give personality to uh, inanimate objects, then yep, I guess you can psychoanalyze me if you want. Um, in your Bibles, at the top of this section on John 9, depending on your translation, you may see a heading that reads something like, Jesus heals a blind man or a man blind from birth. How many of you heard this story before to some extent? Yeah, it's a pretty popular story, and we're going to read through it again today, but before we do, I just want to kind of paint a little context around what's happening here. So if we were to go back a couple chapters into John 7, we see that where and when this takes place is in Jerusalem during a feast or festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the, this is one of these festivals that's open to everyone, meaning both Jews and Gentiles can participate in it. They can enter the temple court together. And the purpose of this festival is kind of twofold. On one hand, it celebrates or remembers God's provision in the past. And on the other hand, it's looking forward with anticipation to the Messiah that was promised for generations to come, right? And so it's kind of this twofold, and what we find is in the middle of this festival or feast, we find Jesus standing in the temple court, and he begins teaching and saying things, kind of alluding to the idea that he might actually be this Messiah that they're looking for. And he's speaking with such authority that people are beginning to believe and uh, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, some of the religious leaders in the time, they started getting scared, and understandably so, right? If someone came up here and started, like, saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, we'd be like, dude, you're a little crazy. And if they began leading people astray, there's kind of this defense mechanism. They don't want people to be led astray by a heretic. And so, but they also realize that he's speaking with an authority beyond human means. And so, what do they do? They begin accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed, Right? They're kind of like, hey, yo, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. And he's like, nah, uh uh-huh, nah, uh-huh, nah, uh-huh, right? It's kind of this back and forth until someone decides that they all need a nap, and so they all go home, it says, at the end of chapter 7, except for Jesus, who goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you don't know where the Mount of Olives is, I just happen to have a picture. Modern-day Jerusalem, you see where the number one is? That's the Mount of Olives. The number two is the Temple Court. So they're not super far away from each other. You can see one from the other, and there's a valley that's kind of hard to see in between them called the Kidron Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane lies, where Jesus prayed the famous words, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus spends the night up on the mount. In chapter eight, it says Jesus went back into the temple, and 
all the people gathered around him, so he began teaching again. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Jesus spent his night, but I have a pretty good idea how some of the Pharisees spent their night. It was on a witch hunt. They were looking for any means to discredit Jesus as possibly being the Jewish Messiah, and they had found a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her before Jesus, and they throw throw her at his feet with the crowd looking on. And they said, according to Jewish law, according to the Mosaic law, there's a punishment for anyone caught in this type of sin, and it is to be stoned. And what that means is not what it means if you stop by a dispensary on your way home today. It's a little different in Jesus' time. What it meant is, hey, everybody pick up a rock. We're going to take turns throwing them at her until she dies. That's the punishment for this sin. And they thought they had Jesus caught because if he said, okay, go ahead, follow the law, and they killed her, there's one less sinner running around the streets, right? But if Jesus showed her grace, then he couldn't have been the Jewish Messiah. So they thought he had, they had him stuck. They're like, okay, Jesus, which is it, A or B? And what does Jesus say? (laughs) None of the above. He's kind of like, okay, if this is how you want to play, I'll play. So I guess whoever of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Like the double gotcha. And as we read, as he knelt and wrote on the ground, one by one, the Pharisees put down their stones from the oldest to the youngest, and they left until it was just Jesus and the woman amongst the crowd. And he asked her, has anyone condemned you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one. It says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And I love how many encounters with Jesus or God in scripture do we see that end with a go, right? Because healing in and of itself is not the whole picture. Even forgiveness in and of itself is not the whole picture. There's always a call to action, to go, So she goes, she exits stage right, and I don't know how far the Pharisees had gone, probably not very far, because they file right back in stage left, and they were like, okay, so that plan backfired, so I guess we're going back to our original plan of accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. And so they do, and what they were trying to do was kind of put him into a corner to say something heretical, to claim that he was actually God, because this whole time he had been kind of saying it without actually saying it. And so they push and they push and they push. And at the end of chapter eight and verse 58, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. You can bring the volume down a little if you want. I can talk loud. Um, I am. And the Pharisees got him. Why? Because who is I am in scripture? I am is who God told Moses at the burning bush that his name was. I am was the creator of the universe. I am was the sustainer of living, every living thing. I am was Yahweh, the one and only true God. And here Jesus said, I am. So in verse 59, we read the Pharisees started to pick the stones up again. Probably the same stones they were ready to hurl at this woman, ready to hurl at Jesus but he was hidden from them and he left the temple. I thought that was so interesting. It doesn't say he vanished, but he was hidden from 
the Pharisees, whether it was a cloak of invisibility or, or whatever, somehow the Pharisees were blinded, physically blinded to the physical presence of Jesus, just as they had been spiritually blinded to the possibility that this Jesus could be the very Messiah they had waited for for generations. Blinded. And as Jesus leaves the temple in the very next verse, who is the first person he meets? John 9, verse 1. He saw a man blind from birth. Coincidence? You may wonder, okay, how did they know he was blind from birth? It's possible, for one, that Jesus is in very nature God, possibly omnipotent. He could have known everything about this man right before he ever saw him. It's one possibility. Another possibility is this man could have been a recurring figure at the gate, right? And so Jesus or the disciples may have seen him before, or they may have heard bits and pieces of his story. But I'm wondering this morning, does Jesus make such a distinction about that? What if there was something more physically apparent? Something about his countenance, something about his face or eyes that it would have been apparent that this was not the cause of a degenerative eye disease, this was not the result of an injury. There's no getting around. This man had never been able to see. He was somehow incomplete. Verse two, the disciples ask, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You see, there was this Jewish notion at the time that sickness or even deformity was the result of either your sin or it could have been generational, handed down from your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. And the, the seeds of that are found in the Ten Commandments in verse five of Exodus 20. And so they're thinking, okay, who sinned, this man? Although if he was born blind, maybe it wasn't his fault. Maybe it was his parents. So again, similar to the Pharisees, the disciples are, which is it, Jesus, A or B? Jesus says, none of the above. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed or made complete in him. And if we skip down a few verses, we see something weird. Because Jesus spits in the dust, he makes mud from the saliva, and then he puts it on the man's eyes. To which I have to ask, why? We've seen Jesus heal people with a command before. We've heard Jesus say the word, take up your mat and walk. Why the arts and crafts project? Why is Jesus getting his hands in the dirt? That's the question. When else in scripture have we seen God make something from the dust. In Genesis 2-7, we read that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Depending on your translation, the Greek word here for mud that we see in the NIV is, is palos or palos, and it actually means clay. In Isaiah 64, 8, we read, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are all the work. There's that word again. The work of your hands. I think Jesus making clay 
was a simple way of informing the disciples. You remember what I just said in the temple? That I said, I am. I'm the same God that formed man from the dust. I am the word from the beginning. I am the one who made clay and formed the man and my creative work is not yet done. Like Ali just said, in the book of Revelation, it's not done until it's done. And he is not done yet. And so, the better way of looking at it, this is fake clay, don't mind me, but Jesus took the clay and continued to form and reform man. Verse 7, at the end of this encounter, what does Jesus say? Go. Are we surprised? (laughs) Go, he tells him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam was used for a lot of uh, ritual or ceremonial cleansing, and it was near the king's gates. It was often also referred to as the king's pool. And here we have Jesus, the king of kings, sending a man to be cleansed in the king's pool. Scripture says he came home seeing. And this is not the last encounter that Jesus has with this man. We see later on in the chapter how, how it moves from a physical opening of his eyes to a spiritual opening of his eyes as he puts his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So as I began getting uh, reading up on clay metaphors and stuff this week, I got uh, slightly obsessed. I don't know if anyone ever has a tendency to do that. So naturally, I signed Michelle and myself up for a pottery class. And there's a place down on 24th Street near Zach and Kelly's house. And uh, we learn how to turn pottery on a wheel. Has anyone ever tried this before? Okay, I see a few brave souls. I gotta tell you, it's harder than it looks. (laughs) A few things I learned. Number one, it's really unfair to ask a woman who is nine months pregnant to sit arched over in this position for hours on end. (laughs) Second thing I learned is it's messy. It's messy. If you've ever spun with the wheel, you know the water and the clay, it gets everywhere. Your hands, your arms, head and shoulders, knees and toes, the whole kit and caboodle, right? It is a disaster. And what I love about this picture is that Jesus, as the potter, got messy. And it wasn't just physically messing around in the dirt, and it wasn't just even metaphorically the people that he associated with that were deemed unclean from the prostitutes and the tax collectors. That's where you would find Jesus among the unclean. But in the simple fact of the incarnation that Jesus left heaven and entered the mess. So I'm thankful that our potter is one who doesn't mind getting messy. Now, we didn't get to bring our toddler, Wyatt, with us to the thing, so we picked up some fake clay. (laughs) Get him rolling the snake. (laughs) Rolling the snake. This is probably what some of us then did in high school, right? You roll the snake and you coil it into a little thing, and uh, it's pretty pathetic, but that's... That's, that's life, right? 
So Wyatt loved playing in the clay. He loved tearing it apart and throwing it on the ground. But he got concerned when his hands got dirty. <laughs> Those of you who know him know he loves playing in the dirt, the mud, anything, but he hates getting his hands dirty. Or for some of us, we may like the idea of helping people until it gets messy. So thankful that Jesus is a potter who gets his hands messy. Next thing I learned about wheel throwing is it requires a lot of patience, which I am not, not my strongest spiritual gift. I don't think it is one, but maybe it is. Is it? Gift of the Spirit. Don't have it. But... <laughs> There's this, if you've done the wheel throw, and you know when you first go to center your clay, you hit the thing to like full throttle, right? The dude's spinning, plop the clay in the center, you cone up, you flatten down, you open, and then you're supposed to cut it back to like half speed to begin forming the sides. But in my mind, I was hoping to get like an entire dinette set created by the time we got out of this thing, and so I'm like, faster is better. Let's crank this out, right? And, I, and how many times did our instructors say, slow the wheel, Josiah, slow the wheel. And sure enough, I'd pinch it and a piece would come flying off. And then I'm like, well, now I got to do it even faster to catch up with, you know, how easy it is for us to run ahead, full throttle into something, not even realizing the destruction that we may bring on ourselves. But when we allow Jesus to be our potter and to mold us and to shape us, he goes at a much more patient pace. Next thing I learned, it is harder than it looks on Instagram. <laughs> it is so hard. After fighting with this thing and wearing it everywhere, it was time for cleanup. You know, my apron was a disaster. My everything was a disaster. And I'm there pulling chunks, like fully, a full set of dishes out of what I could have made probably. And, uh, and so one of the instructors during cleanup, they sit down at the wheel next to me and they just start messing around and just like, oh, you want a, a Ming Dynasty era vase? Uh, no problem, you know. It's just like, I realize I'm not a potter. <laughs> and I'm so thankful that I'm not the potter as much as I like to try to form my life around my desires, my ambitions, my dreams, we are much better hands when we put our lives in the hands of Jesus, the potter. So in light of my newfound obsession, apparently, with clay, I'd like to have three clayful questions for us today. I know it's corny, but sometimes corny sticks, okay? So... First question is this, are you moldable? Are you teachable? When the clay would get too dry, it would crack and become useless. If it was oversaturated, it would just make a terrible mess everywhere and begin to fall in again. Are you moldable? And if so, is Jesus your potter? Or are other things, people, influences, experiences shaping you in life? Are you moldable? Number two, are you useful? So once the, the pottery air dries, it's still not useful. It's still not watertight. It doesn't become impervious until after it goes through the fire. 
the oven, the kiln. It's not until then that it becomes useful for things. How many of us have been through the fire maybe multiple times in our lives and come out the other side finally being found useful? How many of us have, have not ever dealt with the situations or trials that come and it, 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 we don't have any way to, to deal with it properly? Reminded in James 1 that we are supposed to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete. not run from the trials, let's engage them as Jesus walks through them with us. Are you useful? The third thing, third question is, are you broken? I know this is a phrase that gets thrown around in church a lot and it can mean different things. For me, there's kind of two types of brokenness that I'm looking at today. You can add your own if you like. But I think the first type of brokenness is a kind that almost happens to you. So it could be whether it's the result of your own actions or someone else's. It could be the end of an addiction cycle where you find yourself helpless, alone, no family, no friends, you have nowhere to go. There's just this profound brokenness about your life. This could be, it could be this. It could be setting out with your own life dreams, goals, ambitions, whether it be career, family, personal, whatever it is. And the the more that you've shaped your dreams, the more that you've tried to create the structure in your life, you've set goals, and yet it seems like setback after setback after unforeseen circumstance comes, and it just crushes your dream. And in Psalm 22, verse 15, the psalmist writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a shard of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Can you hear just like the crushing defeat? And if that's you this morning, the good news is this. As I understand it, the strongest pottery is made with pieces, shards of old broken pottery mixed into it. And if we are willing to put our lives in the hands of Jesus, the potter, he can form and reform and build us into something even stronger and more resilient and more useful than ever. The other type of brokenness that I thought of this morning is is the kind that we have to choose to enter into. Whether you're a self-made person and you've raised yourself up by your bootstraps and accomplished certain things and you just somehow neglected the fact that there are people who can't do for themselves what you have done. Or whether it's over this last season, you've spent so much time focusing on you and yours from making sure your family has what they need and somehow the cries for help have gotten lost in the peripheral. No greater picture can I think of of this type of brokenness than the picture of Jesus on the cross. Scripture says he chose and his body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And once a month here at Renovation, we celebrate something called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion where we have bread and juice that are symbolic of Jesus' body and blood that were broken and poured out for us and we share in it together. We do it in remembrance of what God has done for us, but the other part of that is sharing in it. Symbolically, when we receive the elements, we're effectively saying, okay, God, I remember that you were broken and poured out for me, so now I choose to be broken and poured out for others. Often in scripture, we hear, we see where God hears the cries of people and then responds. Sometimes our Eucharist or our holy discontent, as it may be, sometimes it starts by hearing a cry. In this book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, I wanna read a little excerpt as they talk about the cry. It says, when we hear the cry, everything changes. You can live anywhere, you can work anywhere, but if you hear the cry, everything changes. Because when we hear the cry, we're with God. When God gets Moses' attention and lays out for him what liberation is going to look like for his people, he tells Moses, go. Listen and then go. And this going will take a multitude of forms. It will involve risk. It will mean conversations with people who are nothing like us and it will cost something because the Eucharist always does. It isn't just about trying to save the world. It's about saving ourselves. It's about saving ourselves from the kingdom of comfort, from the priority of preservation, from the empire of indifference and from an exile of irrelevance. Jesus wants to save our church from thinking that the priests are somebody else. Instead of standing at a distance and saying someone else, it's stepping up and stepping into the invitation to the risk, to the suffering and to the joy. The suffering, the cost, comes from hearing something that rings in your head and heart with such force that you can't stop hearing it. It comes from being captivated by a great cause, one so massive and compelling that you'd sell everything you have to be a part of it. How many of us this morning have a call like that? According to the CDC, Today in America, 39% of the babies born will be born to a single mom or an unwed mother. In parts of the Bible Belt, it's higher than that, upwards of 55%. But 140 years ago in what we call the Victorian era of America, this was not the case. 140 years ago, to be a single and pregnant woman was to be an outcast from society. It was to bring shame on your family, and many parents actually disowned their daughters for finding themselves in a situation like this. Society labeled these bad girls fallen women, and often their children would be taken from them so they couldn't corrupt their children. Sometimes they would be left on church steps because they didn't have the means to provide for them. In best case, These women would be forced into secrecy to silently suffer their sentence. 
tell a small group of Christian ladies in Minneapolis heard the cry. You put that, uh, there you go. I'm gonna read excerpts from an article I found earlier this week. In July of 1876 in Minneapolis, a small group of upper-class women known as the Sisterhood of the Bethany, a Quaker religious society, joined together to establish the Bethany Home for Fallen Women with the hope of giving unwed mothers a second chance. The basic premise of the Bethany Home was to help women who had become pregnant out of wedlock, whether through sex work or by failed relationships. Upon entering the home, they signed a contract for a year and agreed to obey the house rules, although the participants could choose to leave. Once their infants were born, every mother was given the choice to either keep their child with assistance from the staff at the home for the next three or four months or to place their child up for adoption. Over the next decade, the Bethany Home became a pillar of the woman's community of Minneapolis. The home's founders, Charlotte Van Cleve and Abby Mendenhall, began targeting the powerful men running the sex industry rather than blaming the young woman who had been coerced into the profession. Once, when interviewed by a newspaper regarding the integrity of the fallen women, Charlotte memorably remarked, where are the men who make these girls what they are? Go find them in our business marts, drawing rooms, and churches. Men are getting rich on the toil and tears of famishing women and children. With the mindset of targeting the source of illegitimate birth, Charlotte and Abby took advantage of the already established laws and turned them into their favor. And in the 1880s, the city of Minneapolis enacted fines against known houses of prostitution and brothels within the city limits. This meant that these locales had to pay monthly fines to the city to continue operation. With money always being in short supply at the Bethany home, the women set, out, set about to turn the tables on the stigma of fallen women. Charlotte and Abby convinced the city to give them two-thirds of the monthly collected fines to help fund the Bethany home, directly supporting the women who were victims of the industry. With a solid budgetary plan and a persuasive argument, the women were victorious and acquired funding for years to come. Now, eventually, after Abby and Charlotte's deaths, the home closed, but not before helping an estimated 8,000 women, and presumably 8,000 children, at least, along with that, lives that were impacted because they heard the cry, they found their Eucharist that they were willing to be broken and poured out for in their time, and they made the difference. What is your Eucharist? As the band comes, in a moment, we're gonna sing and reflect, and some may wanna respond. Um, and after we sing, Allie, would you mind closing this out? That'd be all right. Um, maybe you feel broken this morning. If so, you're in the right place. Maybe on the other side of things, Maybe you realize this morning that your heart has not been broken for a while for someone outside of your immediate family, your immediate situation. Maybe God is saying to all of us this morning, would you put your life in my hands, in the hands of the potter? Let me mold you, make you, break you if needed so that I can form you into the person I know you can be.
reminded of an old song we used to sing in church when I was growing up as a kid. Um, We don't have it, but I'm gonna sing a quick blip of it here for you. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. Stand with me this morning. God, let that be our prayer this morning, that you is our potter. We are the clay. Would you take what we have, God? Form, reform, do whatever you need to do, God, to make us into the people that you have called us to be. The band sings, respond as you feel led.